Hi, it's Mike, and this is Students of S.H.I.E.L.D. Weekly Comic Reviews, issue number seven. Somebody talk. It's the intro to the show. I'm Mike. I am Daniel. I'm Vincent. And it's Students of S.H.I.E.L.D. Weekly Comic Reviews, because that show officially has a name now. Now, our retro book for this week is Showcase number 100 from February 1978, obviously from D.C. So this is kind of tricky. Because um, this issue, I mean, I, I knew it if I would have actually thought for a second. And I, and I, and I, I don't think it would have disqualified it if I had, had thought about it. But we are going to cover this issue on a crisis cast if and when we ever get back to that show. So I'm just going to kind of say some of the general stuff and then we can give our thoughts on it. But as far as the more like breakdown and stuff like that, and or we'll just repeat everything I say. Um, we'll just download topic. the video and play it when we eventually just get back to Crisis Cast, is what you're saying? Yeah, or that, or just edit it in. Um, but this is written by Paul Levitz and Paul Copperberg, the double Paul team, art by Joe Staten. It's slightly oversized. Showcase ran 104 issues, so this is very late in the run. And the cover touts that this ish, this story has 60 stars. And because the concept of this is for the 100th issue the like fake anniversary you know that's how comic books work is let's bring in every single character who's ever been in showcase and put them in a crazy crossover story and so we open on the jla satellite and some major shit is going down on page one we get a bunch of the kind of more major characters we have flash green lantern aquaman the atom adam strain teen titans metal men hawk and dove and rip hunter and basically there's something going on with like space-time and also the earth is being pulled out of orbit and they have to split up into like four different teams to accomplish different objectives and they keep pulling in more and more of the characters who've appeared in showcase um either just showing up or they are time displaced or they're just a very quick cameo um and really mainly the, the characters in that initial page are the ones that get to shine plus a little a few more um lois lane does a lot in this issue and oddly angel from angel and the ape ends up playing a very crucial role and the phantom stranger shows up and they do a little seance to summon the even bigger crazy op uh force of the specter who literally grabs the earth in space and moves it back into orbit or something, but then that doesn't even like accomplish the ultimate objective either. Um, and there's also like, I mean, this is 1978, so this is not remotely Silver Age, but it really plays on that like silver or like silver bronze age, like let's throw some science fiction bullshit in here. There's like a whole mini panel dedicated to trying to visually explain the Doppler effect, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, but it's in like a stiff, nerdy way that DC would do it as opposed to Stan Lee's like total bullshit, but like fun way of trying to explain science fiction. Um, and then the cool part is that there is an index in the back, essentially in the letters page where it's like, this is every single character in this issue. And this is all the issues of showcase they appeared in and other relevant stuff. Um, the ones that they did not use, I didn't double check every single one, but they 
did not use James Bond or G.I. Joe, which both had appearances in Showcase. And I'm assuming they were smart. They may have still held the license, but they were smart enough not to use them. Um, that's kind of really all I want to talk about here, because otherwise it's kind of going to be like a history of the Marvel Universe coverage, where it's like, let me name every single character. And the plot, I, I mostly explained it, and uh, it doesn't make that much sense. Otherwise, I'm going to turn it to the, to the, to the group and, and ask what you guys thought about this insanity. Um, insanity was right. There was a lot going on at a very fast pace, and I thought it was a little bit jumbled, very, very wordy um, to the point where I think it was too much, where it was taking away from the art, um, especially when you have such a big cast of characters there. Always fun to see like guys like the Metal Men, even though they, we just talked about their first issue book last week, but when they showed up, that was cool. Um, I thought Rip, seeing like the original Rip Hunter was cool, like not like just I wear a leather jacket and I'm moody Rip Hunter that we get now. Um, especially like this is Rip Hunter before Booster Gold, which is another thing to kind of note. So I, I thought it was really fun. I was surprised no Batman or Superman in here. I was really thinking we were going to get them. Well, they were um, never, but, yeah, they were yeah. never in Showcase. Which I thought Showcase was like a Superman book for a while, but no. Yeah. Um, but Robin was here, and that was cool. So, I mean, Aquaman was kind of leading the charge a little bit. Yeah. Well, Robin's obviously there through the Teen Titans. Right. Yes, yeah, so Showcase was DC's tryout title. So a character would have a Showcase appearance, maybe a, a short Showcase run, and then if... DC deemed that the sales were good or there was a positive response in the letters, they would get their own ongoing title. Um, Which I knew, like, how Jordan Green Lantern made his first appearance in Showcase. I mean, the most famous, honestly, like, the most famous issue of the Silver Age of DC, well, the thing that started the Silver Age in comics in general, is Showcase number four with the first appearance of Barry Allen. Um, Showcase... Is that the first appearance of... No, that's Brave and the Bold. I was going to say, Brave and the Bold 28 is Justice League, I believe. Yeah. But I think I think Hal Jordan might be around the 20s or 30s. Uh, I th- Hal Jordan Showcase 22. Okay. Um, yeah, and there's obscure ones in here, as we said. Angel and the Ape, Inferior 5, which I think we brought up on this show for some reason a while back. Um, oh, yeah, because there's an Inferior 5 book going on. Which yeah, there's that book with uh, Giffen and Lemire. I like how Dolphin and Aquaman interact here. I had no idea that they had actually interacted prior to Peter David's Aquaman run. Um, also, so Dolphin saves two kids in the ocean. And the two ki- it's not a one-to-one match, but the two kids totally look like Sugar and Spike, who are like these, like, little kid humor characters that had a DC title for a long time in the Silver Age, but they totally never appeared in Showcase, and it's not a perfect match, So, but I think it's a cameo. Um, I don't know, Dan, you haven't said anything yet. You're obviously less, uh, in, less versed in your DC knowledge. What, yeah. what kind of a shock to the system was this? I mean, it was really hard to read, because like, obviously I don't have a lot of background with a lot of the characters, so it's like you know, coming into this book, you're kind of expected to know a little bit more about who they are. And I mean, I thought it was okay. Um, I agree with Mike that it is a little wordy. Um, a lot of like, a lot of explanations. I did think the Doppler thing was a little weird. How he just showed like a little like 
on the bottom part of the of the panel they just showed like i don't know what that was trying to do like it's just that's not what it looks like but um i don't know i feel like if i would have like known more of these characters i would have enjoyed it more but i just i'm not there yet so i mean in 1978 i feel like this would have been fucking crazy and cool because you have to consider yeah, it's, like, it's really it's fun i think yeah. it's like the core element of this is fun like obviously the the justice league they had their crisis crossovers every summer but like you know crisis on infinite earth was the first event series for dc comics and um like i don't you would never get an issue even in the justice league things like you you wouldn't get an issue with 60 like separate franchises all crossing over and the, and this is like eight years before crisis seven to eight years um so i think this is it's a really cool like weird one-off issue and as jumbled as it is impressive that it's one issue but that's that that's showcase um i think if we you know none of us were over the moon for it but i think this is a super interesting book to look at for retro and again we'll look at it again in some form maybe <laughs> eventually we'll do a more deeper dive on it because that is that that's what that shows for but yeah so now into the actual books from the week all right Action Comics number 1016. Can you believe we're already there after 1000? It feels so long ago. Um, Naomi is still helping out Superman, continuing the story that Bendis has laid here. Simon Kodransky is still on art. And I'm going to just start by saying that I love the double page splashes he does in this issue. The whole story is told in these snapshots of different citizens that were bystanders watching this fight between the Red Cloud and Superman as this reporter for the Daily Planet is like piecing together what happened. Um, meanwhile, still back the Hall of Justice, Batman and Naomi are still figuring out what exactly her powers are because Naomi is emitting this large scale like radiation, like high energy levels. But she jumps in to help Superman and because the Red Cloud got powered up by Lex during from, from like the dirt gifts from the, what is it? the Because he's ultimate Lex or something now, right? So... Well, oh, that's Apex Lex, yeah. So it all converges there, and there's kind of a fun moment where, like, Batman wants Naomi to sit down. She's like, well, I'm not going to go to. And he's like, yeah, I know. So they all go to help her. So Red Cloud manages to kind of get away, and then they return Naomi to her mother back in Portland, where Superman has a cool moment where he meets her, meets her mother, and uh, Batman basically says, hey, we got to set up a Star Labs facility outpost here to monitor her because of this high-energy output. Um, and then our last scene is Marisol Leone, the new owner of the Daily Planet, who's also part of like this dark organization, meeting with a shadowy figure, announcing they will move forward with their plan to take down Superman. Um, it, it's still my complaints with Bendis here are, I like the, I like the plotting of this issue where it's told in all these snapshots of the different bystanders. I think that was a really, really cool idea that I haven't seen played with a lot. But at the same time, nothing is happening. And now we're getting bypassed with the Leviathan stuff with Naomi com coming back in here. Um, I think this was better than the last issue, but I, the, I'm holding on to this book by a thread. I, it gets one more for me before I fully drop it off. But I think big shout out to Grant, Kredan, uh, Simon, Kodansky, Simon Kodransky here because 
it looks beautiful with these double page spreads where he has the fight going on and then all the snapshots of the bystanders um, saying what happened. Is this the end of the Naomi arc? I think we're going to get one more issue out of it, but it, yeah. it seems like this could be the last we see of her for now. All right. That's Action Comics. All right. So moving into Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 32, as I adjust my angle here. Um so this issue is kind of a little bit of setup for a Spider-Man 2099 arc, as well as a, I guess like a like continuing off of the last issue, like you know working with uh, Teresa Parker, um, you know hunting down the Infinity Formula, which I believe was first introduced in like, was it the? I mean, it's obviously it's like a Nick Fury type of like deal, but I remember reading about it in like the Nick Fury. Nick Fury versus Shield like miniseries that came out in, like the 80s. I'm not sure if it was around before then, um, but yeah. So pretty much we open with Miguel, who is I guess Spider-Man 2099. I'm not really 100 familiar with the character, so. Um, well, O'Hara. Was he? His name is Miguel O'Hara. That's what I thought it was. Yeah, my bad. Um, so he's like there's like this uh, oil rig that exploded and he's like, I guess like passed out or something. He, he was on the rig when it blew and he's being like tested on and shit. And we don't really get a lot of backstory other than like shadow, shadowy figures kind of chill in the background. Um, and then we have kind of Peter, you know, just, uh, I guess just working on like a group project and the fire alarm gets pulled in his, you know, he's back at empire, uh, universe, empire state university. While Mary Jane obviously moved um, out west to work on a uh, movie project or something, which we will talk about when we get into our next issue that for this show. But yeah, he pretty much teams up with Teresa again, finds out that there's a sale going on between this guy named the Foreigner and the Chameleon. So really cool to see the Chameleon. Um, I know he was teased at a few issues back, and it seems like now we're kind of getting that payoff with him showing up in the in the series, which is nice. And, you know, kind of getting a fight between the two of them, some pretty cool moments, you know, with Teresa and, you know, honestly, like going back to like the family business OGN, which I believe is where she was introduced. Um, you know, I really like her character. I think she adds like a new dimension and it's kind of cool to give like Peter something to do while Mary Jane's over across the other side of the country. And then, you know, we also find out that there's a third party, working to get the infinity formula and that is the silver sable which again is a, a, a fan favorite of mine in terms of characters for the spider-man mythos you know kind of like an anti-hero not really a villain but not really like an ally to spider-man sometimes and the last part of this issue is uh, miguel o'hara kind of breaking out of his containment cell to go find peter parker and we don't really get a lot of backstory as to why or what's really going on, but it's interesting nonetheless. Um, I think this issue is going in a pretty cool direction. Um, it felt like a Spider-Man issue to me, like, you know, other than the setup for the 2099 stuff, it felt like a classic like Spider-Man issue, like you know, him in school again, you know, just teaming up and, you know, street level type of stuff like this, I thought was pretty cool. So I'm curious to see what you guys thought on this issue. What about I the art? <laughs> I said, I said, what about the art? Oh, the, the art, art was fantastic. I loved it. 
Well, that's because it's the debut of Patrick Gleason now on Amazing Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Which... Because that's important. Well, it is important. The the man was at DC for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, And without missing a beat, it looks fantastic. Right, Vince? I mean, it looked great. Yeah, I mean... I'm interested to see how he handles Peter Parker going forward in the Empire State um, scenes. I feel like Peter looks a little young, um, but his Spider-Man looks fantastic. And the the Silver Sable splash page is great. It's really good. Yeah. Really, really good, like, splash page with uh, Spider-Man 2099 falling down on the car and stuff. That looked good. We've seen the teases on Twitter from him, and now to finally see it colored and finished, it's... It looks great. Um, I will say though, it, it seems like they're hinting that Doom it, Doom twenty ninety nine is behind the whole reason why Miguel's back. That he has to fix the past because something goes wrong in the future. Um, this is also done in like it's a it's I think the twentieth anniversary of twenty ninety nine. So that's why they're, we're getting all of these twenty ninety nine stuff um, back here. I think it's it's an anniversary for something. It's got to be twenty five. I think you're right about anniversary, but it'll be it would be twenty five. The inclusion of Silver Sable is interesting. We haven't seen her in a while. At least I haven't. And I'm interested to see how we keep using Teresa Parker because I'm I'm down for it because no one's doing anything with that character really. I think Chip used her once in Spectacular. And then before that, like her only appearance was in the the OGN. So it it is kind of cool to see her becoming more and more of a supporting character other than the, other than just like a character that yeah they're in this book but yeah we're not gonna do anything with her so I, I like to see her more and more and like Spider-Man going on fun like spy missions is no different than what we've seen in Full Circle that came out this week which is the next book we're gonna talk about where he's hanging out with Nick Fury and Dum Dum Dugan the whole time yeah so I just want to note for the, for the nerds out there mostly for myself that Foreigner is was like this character that was this overly long subplot in the Spider-Man books from like the late 80s into the early 90s. It was a whole, it was like mostly Peter David and then I think Jerry Conway picked it up. And then I guess he transferred over to the the Silver Stable in the Wild Pack book, has a ton of appearances there. So maybe that's, you know, maybe Silver Stable has a true connection with them. I haven't read Silver Stable in the Wild Pack, so uh, I can't speak to that much. But apparently, I don't know if you guys had jumped onto the book yet, Apparently, Foreigner appeared, or maybe he was just referenced, in Captain America 10 and 11 from the current run. Uh, that would have been before we hopped on. Okay. Yeah. But that's that's interesting because that's not too long ago. Oh, yeah, I loved it. Um, I'm excited to see how Gleason plays off of Otley and vice versa. And this issue was really more set up. One, when we really jump into 2099, We'll see what we think of that um, because we the last time they tried to do something bigger with this title was Hunted, and we had some. I mean, we liked Hunted, uh, uh, definitely, but we had some reservations with some of the tie-in uh, structuring and everything like that. Well, that's that's what I want to get into. I just I don't want it to be as I, it felt a little bit dragged out by the end of it. I hope we do, it doesn't feel like the year is hijacked by 2099 because I want to get back to the other stuff. And I thought hunted kind of really hijacked a lot of the progression. The book was at kind of hit a standstill with it, but amazing Spider-Man full circle. 
Um, I, when I was writing mine on my notes, I put writing, everyone, artists, everyone, <laughs> because there's like a million people that worked on this book. Really, it's a huge one shot that's really kind of by itself and its own thing. Very kooky and zany, fun hijinks with all of the writers and artists at Marvel working together. Kind of like the DC challenge, but in one book and all for Spider-Man. It's Spider-Man and Nick Fury are teaming up to try to take down this AIM corporation that's they've set up uh, like their cells are in like these theme parks that are like base it's basically Disney World. So they're taking down like these Disney World. There's werewolves. The Punisher bonded with the ultimate nullifier shows up that the earth explodes by the end of this and they have to reset it. We have Spider-Ham, a literal pig Spider-Man named Swine Spider. The high evolutionary shows up with his animal villains. Wolverine's here. It very, very fun kind of all over the place story that I think had to have been a blast for everyone to work on. If you're able to get a copy of it, I think it, I, I personally wouldn't recommend it. I thought it was a little bit too much, but I can see how someone could have fun with this. Um, personally, I, I think it was just a little bit too long and too over, like it was just too much for me, but it was fun, but I don't think worth that nine ninety nine price tag. Yeah, I just couldn't get to it this week. Um, I'm probably going to, Pick it up some other week and uh, see if I can get through it all. That's really expensive, man. Ten dollars. Well, it's like a eighty-page book. Yeah, I mean it's the same as Detective Thousand, Action Thousand. They they do one of these ten-dollar Spider-Man issues like every single year, pretty much. I think over the past five years or so. Well, my uh, thing with that is. I just very quick question before we move into Mary Jane is did this book have ads because tech and action didn't have ads. And I was flipping through the physical copy of, of X-Men number one. That was a five ninety. It was a four ninety nine book. And I'm pretty sure that was only like the standard 22 pages. Um, did you count the, the graph pages? No, I did. Yeah. Um, but I, I know, like, Marvel Comics 1000, the physical copy definitely has ads. Yeah, which, which kind of annoyed me. Definitely annoying compared to Action and Detective, which didn't. I feel like if you have a square bound, if you have a square bound book rather than stapled, I don't, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't matter. All right. Amazing Mary Jane, number one, to complete the Spider-Man trifecta this week. I think last week we had a Superman trifecta. So we did. We're over to the, the big Marvel dude. This is written by Leah Williams, art by Carlos Gomez. Gomez is coming on this book from Red Sonia, which I think is slightly convenient because two redhead characters. And of course there's Marvel Team Up 79 when Peter is on a date with MJ and then MJ swaps minds with Red Sonia. Um, so this story here is, this, this flows out of, I believe Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man 29 where MJ got a call and she's going, she's taking a, like a little trip to Hollywood and she's gonna film a, a movie real quick. Um, and so she's away from Peter while he's dealing with Absolute Carnage, um, 2099, whatever else. And she, the role turns out that it's a sympathetic biopic of Mysterio. And there is some shady shit on set, including a bunch of like low tier, half reformed villains like kangaroo there and Mysterio just when she starts like getting wary of things 
Mysterio just reveals himself that he's undercover as the director of the film. So he's written and uh, writing and directing the, the thing, the movie about himself, himself, but the real director who he, whose identity he has stolen is totally fine. He's like this ridiculous, I guess, method director, if you want to call that a thing, like way too dedicated. He's like scouting penguins. Um, and But Mysterio is totally serious about this. He really wants to make a movie and he kind of wants it to be good and everything. And MJ is down just because it's like weird and a challenge, I guess. And she's having fun as long as she gets some creative control. And there's some, it's kind of weird because like once they kind of like lay down their cards, it's like the rest of the book, it's just like MJ and Mysterio having like serious back and forth about filmmaking and like, being very nonchalant and friendly with each other. And they both get funny moments. Um, MJ's having fun. And then basically we connect back to Spider-Man where she, at the end of the day, she calls Pete up and they chat and she's kind of totally lying to him. That's the thing here. I mean, it's not, it's not a straight faced lie, but she's, you know, when he's at, well, he does say like, you know, it'd be crazy if blah, blah. And it's exact, the, the, the status quo is exactly what he says. And she doesn't say that to him. So I don't know if that'll come up as tension later. We will see. Um, I thought it was a fun moment where she takes a selfie, sends it to Pete. Uh, and then also she puts it on speakerphone and they have a little long distance dance party, um, which also allows some cool art where you have like a split panel with both of their backgrounds. And it's basically where we end, except at the very end, uh, after seeing some paparazzi photos, the vulture and his new post-hunted animal-themed Sinister Six is going to crash the set. And I'm not really certain why, I guess, just to screw with Mysterio or MJ, or or they just want to be dicks. Um, and the, the continuity um, not necessarily a wrinkle. It all depends on, you know, where, how the continuity actually works. But a continuity thing of note is that Scorpion is here totally fine, whereas he was injured in absolute carnage, like in real publishing time, like two or three weeks ago. But as we said, this is before 29, so I think this might be before the entirety of absolute carnage. It's just weird right. published now. But I liked this issue. I thought. Gomez's art, I think it's it's like nine it's like I don't know, it's like seventy-five percent for me. Um I think he has a pretty good MJ. Um there's just a few moments where it's like should have spent just a tiny bit more time on that panel, but that's just the nature of monthly comic books. Oh uh, no, I thought this was good. I thought uh Williams had a great voice for Pete and MJ in this. Um really, really fun, wacky story to lead off with, but it picks up right from 29, which well, I'm sorry, issue 25, which was where MJ stopped Electro and kicked off her acting career again. So it, it's cool that while MJ is out doing her thing, she's getting her own book, her own book for the first time ever, um, showing what she's up to. So it still feels like she's around, and we're not forgetting about her while she's not in going to be in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man all the time. Um, I thought really, really good first issue. I like Carlos Gomez's art a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole I think the whole plot with Mysterio is pretty interesting too. I mean, you know, like you guys said, 
I don't know where they're going to go with it. I don't know what type of path we're going down here with Mary Jane, but it's definitely nice, you know, that Marvel's able to separate these two characters and still, like, you know, give them both time to shine and do their own thing, so. Well, the, the thing right now is if you're a supporting character of The Amazing Spider-Man, you're getting your own book. Yeah. Because Black Hat has a book, MJ has a book, The Daily Bugle and Robbie Robinson are getting their own book. It, it's a little ridiculous, I'll say, but if they're all good, I can't complain because if it's good, it's good. Is we going to get our own book? Going, uh, no, we're not supporting characters. <laughs> wow. But um, um, Angel number six, though. Hellmouth continues as it flows through Angel number six. Fred and Gunn meet fate. Um, meet face to face with Lilith who's pointing them in the right direction to start helping after the Hellmouth opened in the very first issue of the crossover. They're still out in LA while Angel and Buffy are inside the Hellmouth portal. So they're tasked with bringing in Spike who's now newly single after Drusilla dumped his ass after opening up the Hellmouth. And Spike has information on an old Buffy villain who was the very big villain back in season one, which was the master. But this time he's just kind of a giant troll looking dude. So he's not like the big bad that they were so they're tracking him down while they're getting attacked he's in a nightclub's like sulking and drinking so they try to confront him and then another girl kind of comes in and steals spike and they all get into a fight in the nightclub and they manage to escape but fred's captured by them and it looks like it's brian edward hill's version of wolfram and hart the evil demon lawyers from the show um or setting this up so I'm down with it. It's I, I think we're, we're finally building Angel's supporting cast here, which is pretty fun. And they're given something for them to do uh, while the Hellmouth crossover is happening, which is pretty cool. Um, Brian Hill gets these characters really good. And he's very he's been very good at like retooling the characters very, very uh, carefully to fit this kind of new continuity. And I still think Gleb Melnikov's art is very, very good. Um, the Buffy line, I think, continues to be strong even through this very large crossover. Aquaman has his book. Yes. So Aquaman gets an annual, annual number two. This is released out of order. It's after the current arc with Black Manta and Tristram Maurer. Um, which again, I don't, there's weird continuity stuff, um, but I guess, I guess that happens most of the time with annuals because they need to put them out a specific week due to fifth weeks or whatever. Um, so the sky, the current continuity is the sky is dark on all everywhere on the earth, and there's that stupid totality sign in the in the air. And you know, I think Aquaman should be busy fighting with the Justice League somewhere out in space or something. But he's also in Amnesty Bay. Um, interesting to note here that Vita Ayala is co-writing this issue with Kelly Sudakonic. So who knows how that um, division of labor broke down. Art by Victor Ibanez. And so that basically my takeaway for this issue, and I don't know if this is Ayala's contribution, but there's lots of lenient comedy here. It it almost it really makes Aquaman more like Momoa. He's jokey, he's kinda dumb. Uh, but it didn't bother me a ton. And there are fun moments here. So it, it it's not like I hated it, but I'm not really a huge fan of this character overall but we open with a minor villain trying to harass the town and he goes by the name sea daddy and sea daddy comes across 
Aqua's man, lad, and dog. But actually, Aqua Dog is named Salty. Um, and there's like Long John Silver jokes. And then the Sea Daddy shoots at the dog. So Aquaman beats the shit out of him with his trident. But the gun ends up hitting a bunch of fireworks and it starts a big fire. And Aquaman throws Sea Daddy to a giant squid, which in the process creates a huge tidal wave to crash into the town. And Aquaman's like, that'll put out the fire. But it's like, no, obviously that giant wave just fucks everything up. And there's this weird sequence where there's like this edgy little kid who just like hates the world. I mean, I'm kind of overemphasizing it, but he's like, this sucks. And Aquaman's like trying to cheer him up or distract him. And he's just like, no, that sucks too. There's a bunch of weird characters in this issue. Um, also, Salty, the dog, can't swim. So Aqualad has to jump in after him and get him. And But then the dog ends up missing. And But Aquaman keeps getting distracted. So he goes shopping for some sandwich, for some things for a sandwich. And he runs into a crazy old lady throwing packaged fish on the ground and arguing with the shop clerk. And it turns out she's one of Arthur's ocean god friends. And so it, this, again, this is an annual. It could be totally throwaway, but it's kind of setting up there's, that there's a little bit of, or at least some people sometimes have a little bit of animosity toward uh, these sea gods that Aquaman has brought into town. You know, it's supposed to be like an immigration kind of subtext. And she also explains conveniently that these god characters, they can't interfere with whatever Aquaman's doing. So that explains why a town which is half, which is now half full of thousand-year-old sea gods is not helping, you know, with the current Lex Luthor bullshit. They're just, they're just there to be characters. They can't help in any, uh, any capacity. And then there's a crazy old man, another sea god, who teaches Salty how to swim, but it's supposed to be a fake out. Like Aquaman thinks he's kidnapped the dog and he thinks he's hurting the dog and is going to drown the dog. But now Aqua Dog knows how to swim, which is pretty useful if you're going to be Aquaman's dog. And in the end of the issue, they light a big bonfire with a bunch of like rubble and stuff and everyone comes together. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of fun. It's a little jokey. It's a little too jokey. The characterization not quite how I like it, but it fits in with the run and it's fun overall. The final page though, as everyone's coming together, Aquaman uses his, his like talking to fish sonar abilities and somehow creates like a lit up sign of the town's name in the water, but you don't see what animals he's communicating with. It's got to be some kind of like jellyfish or, or some, some kind of sea animal that lights up but it's not shown to us um i don't know overall it's it's a it's a functional aquaman issue well there you have it <laughs> yeah and now we have another a book also me i, I just I realized we have like like how many we have like six books that all begin with a this week it throws us it throws me off so avengers number 25 this is the end of the challenge of the ghost riders arc and Aaron is kind of having Robbie Reyes lean into like some people's perception of him. And I can't tell which parts are meta and which parts is like Aaron 
throwing jabs at certain fans and stuff like that. But Robbie's like, everyone keeps telling me I'm the worst ghostwriter ever. To hell with being a spirit of vengeance. I'm an Avenger. Um, and then Aaron just, I mean, he kind of just leans into like his brand of, of crazy, um, like high comedy, high action, um, too many quips. So the Avengers have a flying boat all of a sudden. And here's where things kind of, mess with me because Johnny is just totally insane in this story particularly shown in this issue he's like a total asshole he's like uh, a tyrant in in hell and he's being a jerk to all these Avengers and, and has a problem with Robbie and everything like that and ultimately the message in this issue as it ends Robbie realized like hey it's all about family that's basically the conclusion of this arc and Robbie's revelations and everything like that. But it's like, you know, there's an actual ghost writer book running right now that literally just came out. And that family element is also the theme there. I mean, granted Johnny and Danny in this new series, they're not starting on the best foot, but, and I, I don't know. I feel like, John, and also there's a, there's a little bit of Johnny, like, his like uh, motivations not being very clear cut or pop or good in that book either, but I feel like the characterization doesn't really match up, and it's kind of inconvenient when there's supposed to be this big push for a Ghostwriter series, which this book should feed into, and it really doesn't at all. I mean, I honestly jumped on this arc because I'm like, okay, I like the Ghostwriters. There's a Dana Ketch book coming. There's probably going to be some connection. There's literally no connection. Um, there's no cross-references whatsoever, and Danny definitely did not appear in this arc at all. Um, there is, again, on a nerd moment, there's a fun continuity research moment here where Cap, when he's jumping through the air with Black Panther, he references, he's like, this isn't that bad. The real hell was Buchenwald in 1945. So Buchenwald is a German concentration camp that was liberated by the Allies in the afternoon of April 11th, 1945. What if number four, which is what if the invaders lasted after World War II, but it's not like, it's a, it's a non-traditional what if because it's 100% canon because that it basically sets up some of the replacement Captain American Bucky's and everything like that and really set the stage for the invaders. That issue states in like a little fact file thing that Cap and Bucky disappear over the North English Channel sometime before April 18th, 1945. And that was in the Atlantic. So accounting for whatever travel time it would require to get from a mission in central Germany, liberating a concentration camp to whatever they were doing in Northwestern France slash Britain where the plane got, where the plane went down. There are a few days there where Cap could have been uh, involved in the liberation of Buchenwald. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, of course I had to look that up. Um, but, yeah, Robbie ends up living the race. He's free from Uncle Eli's curse, but he still has his powers. He has his car back. He obviously doesn't want the throne of hell. There's the pep talk about family. And so basically he just kind of like, I hate to use this stupid word, but he kind of like cucks. Johnny Blaze, 
And Johnny points it out. Johnny's like, well, you just made an embarrassment of me in front of all of hell, which I'm supposed to rule, and you're not even going to take the throne from me. And Robbie's like, yeah, whatever. You can deal with that in the actual Ghost Rider book. And then the like setup here for future stuff is that there were subplots through these issues of like Tony Stark investing in a cave, and he found an old fossilized helmet. But it turns out that he traveled back in time and I guess it's his helmet, so it's a time loop. So Tony Stark is now stuck as a caveman in 1 million BC. And this is about to get awful because of the connections with Avengers of BC. Um, but the next issue is a one-off about the 1 million BC version of Starbrand slash Hulk, and it's drawn by Dale Kuhn. So depending on how many books I have that week, I'm kind of tempted to read it as a one-off. And mostly just comment on the art. But then after that, the next arc is dealing in the present with it's some cosmic stuff dealing with Starbrand. And Black Widow will be joining the team. And I guess the team has added, well, no, it hasn't. I mean, it sort of has added a member. Because the first arcs were Doctor Strange was the rotating final member. They've added... Blade, I guess, replacing Doctor Strange, and now they're adding Black Widow, but Iron Man is off the map for a little bit. So it's th it's still the same size team for the moment. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I just explained I might check into the next issue as a one-off, but I'm jumping off this book and overall disappointed by this arc. Also, Cosmic Ghost Rider was in this arc, and then he just leaves. And it's not, I assume it's not leading into I mean, maybe it is leading to, into his next series, but Cosmic Ghost Rider also just supremely misused in this uh, arc. Not that I like him in the first place. Now let's talk about a good comic book. A very good comic book. Criminal Number 9 by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. So this fo issue follows Leo, who's the protagonist all the way back from the very first volume of Criminal, which was Coward was the name of the story. And it's a very, it's a young Leo and young Ricky because we're still in the Cruel Summer story. But it's Leo and Ricky, Leo and Ricky Lawless are trying to rob an arcade as they discover there's not much money as they thought they were as they're like waiting for the owner to leave. And like Ricky has to like, R Leo wants Ricky to keep waiting because like, hey, what if he comes back in 15 minutes? You got to account for the time, which is all in line with the way Leo was back in Coward, which he was the guy that takes no risks. He makes sure all the bases are covered. So it's funny seeing that. And then when he gets in the when he gets in the cabinet and busts it open and realizes like there's only six hundred bucks, they thought there was gonna be a lot more. And it goes all into like the details of how he paid attention for like four weeks looking where the where the code were to turn off the alarm and stuff. Ricky then like kind of goes off the deep end where he's just like, let's just steal Ms. Pac-Man. We came here for something, plus it'll impress that girl you like, since she likes that game. So he gets the better of him. They end up trying to wheel out Miss Pac-Man out the back door. But the night watch guard from the office supply store next door sees them. And then he starts beating up Leo and Ricky draws the gun he got from his friend's house on him. And the way they solve this is because the police station's right next to him. They make the cop take off his pants and they get his pants. They throw it off a bridge. And that way he won't run out because that way he won't run to the police and they get away. But... The whole thing is kind of it, it delves into Leo's backstory a little bit um, from his uncle Ivan and his father um, that we saw a little bit of in the very first volume, and then Ricky kind of reaches a boiling point with him because uh, he took an unnecessary risk, and kind of Ricky is 
kind of coming away at the hinges is this is all building up to eventually the death of Teague Lawless. But another really good issue in Cruel Summer. I thought that um, Sean Phillips's art, though, wasn't as top-notch as it usually is. I thought there were some pretty goofy-looking faces in this issue, but still continues to be very good. And then um, reading the the back page uh, essay, uh, it's really cool how Brubaker was talking about it. it was so fun to get back to writing Leo again after not really writing him in the forefront since the very beginning of Criminal. Yeah, I don't have a ton to add. I think it's it's just executed really well. Um, there's just fun like moments where it's like these people are just all criminals. Um, I mean, obviously from the title and very literal, but it. I thought it was funny how the code for the alarm is just on the back of the poster, literally next to it. And he notices- You cut it with 8008, so it spells boob. Oh, no, I didn't know that. I didn't see that, but that's funny. And the, the mispat, like stealing an arcade cabinet is just hilarious. Um, yeah, I, I really great issue again. They always are. Yep. This, uh, it's funny you mentioned that first trade, because like now I have the first three trades of this series going back to its beginning i'm really like i really want to like circle back around and read more of it because like you know kind of jumping in halfway through the move halfway through whatever is really going on but yeah that's good detective comics all right detective comics number 1014 so just picking up you know with the mr freeze storyline that uh, Peter Tomasi's working on, and we get a introduction, you know, to I guess a more I guess a more in depth look at Nora, who is Mister Freeze's wife, and uh, you know, at this point right now she's like pretty much in this like self sustained like freezing chamber, and in the beginning of the issue, she's you know she has to get down to absolute zero for the suit to kind of like be at its like peak effectiveness for her cancer that she's dealing with and the whole time that this is happening she's like you know um victor i want to get out of this i don't want to be in this suit anymore i need to breathe the air and at the end she ends up opening it up and surprisingly not dying which is a little weird um i was totally expecting her to just like die and then that would be like what would set mr freeze on like this rampage against batman or something but it wasn't that um, she still wears it, you know, I guess she, I guess she can take it off and put it back on again. No issues there. Um, so, but the way it turns, you know, we kind of get like a little bit more backstory as to what happened with her, you know, getting the cancer diagnosis, you know, Victor researching something, putting her cryogenic like suspension until he could find the cure to her, you know, cancer or to preserve her body so that she wouldn't die of the cancer. Um, and at the very end, you know, she ends up taking off this, like, suit, and they end up, like, kissing each other. Um, so I think that's kind of cool. Like, you know, it's a little bit of a twist. Like, a lot of the, the way that I would visualize this type of story to go is, like, you know, she, like, distanced herself from him because he's, like, borderline crazy, doing all this stuff for her. But no, that's not how it goes. Um, then we pa pan back to the Batcave where uh, Alfred and Batman are still trying to figure out what was going on with all these other women who were used for experimentation by Victor. They're all still in their like cryogenic tubes and um, Alfred's still wearing the flash mask because he doesn't want the, the woman to know who he is so that they don't put two and two together and find out that you know, Batman's Bruce Wayne. I thought that's still funny how he's basically wearing that throughout this issue. 
and you know uh, Batman goes to kind of visit with Fox or Lucius Fox. I'm sorry, um, kind of get his opinion on the technology behind you know uh, Mr. Freeze's plans. And just as that's happening, we get Mr. Freeze crashing into Wayne's um, house or Wayne Enterprises. I'm sorry, and the wife is with him, which I thought was kind of cool, like kind of like his you know, back up his partner in crime. And they're pretty much coming there to get the cure, you know, to kind of get her out of the stasis chamber. So kind of like what Mr. Freeze looks like right now. We get a good kind of conversation between Victor and Batman about, you know, being in a situation like this where you would do anything for to keep the one you love from dying. And we kind of get a little bit of commentary on Bruce's parents, obviously, like if there was something he could have done to help them from dying from getting shot, you know, back in during the, in the alley in the theater, which um, is of course ironic, and I'm not certain if the issue is trying to reference it, where Bruce's father of some sort is alive and in this continuity due to uh, you know Flashpoint Batman and the City of Bane stuff, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure. I mean, we know that literally every other Batman story right now is takes place before city of Bane, but obviously flashpoint Batman, I go, I mean, he's aware of his existence going back to the button. Um, so, um, it's, it's interesting that that level, like that subtext is there, but it's not ref. It's not directly referenced at all. Yeah. I mean, I felt like last issue of the issue before there was more references towards like the current Batman run. So I'm not sure if like, that's like, something else or whatever but yeah he doesn't like it's not really like it really like over like this is what it is but um yeah and then pretty much you know he gets this like formula that allows her to kind of survive without this tube um we've you know we kind of get like a little bit of like a, a show where she's actually dancing because i guess she was a ballerina dancer or something and then the last real scene is like her teaming up as like I guess you can call her like Mrs. Freeze at this point. That's, that's what they call it. Oh, is that what they did call it? Yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Freeze. Mr. and Mrs. Freeze. Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty on the nose there, I guess. But they're pretty much teaming up now and uh, being, you know, uh, doing criminal activities. But I, th I think like one thing that I really like about Tomasi's detective run is that it's just very the the plot is just really easy to follow. And I mean, obviously, that's because, you know, we talk about how this is a book that anyone can pick up if they're a remote Batman fan. Um, but I really like this. I thought this was, you know, continuing the storyline, a little bit of a twist than what you would normally expect. You know, she ends up joining him instead of like separating herself from him. Um, but yeah, I thought it was pretty good. What do you guys think? I think it's just, yeah, it was surprising to me. I think this is. This has to be temporary at some point um, because I think the idea of Nora as this frozen motivation for Freeze is really central to his character. So whether it's, you know, by the end of Year of the Villain or if it's five years from now, she's going to get, you know, the, the formula is going to wear out, which is, has to probably apply to Freeze as well at some point, And she's going to go right back in that case, frozen up. Um, but it's kind of interesting for the moment, I guess. Um, for like fans and Mr. Freeze, I could understand where like 
they might have an issue with this because it it definitely makes him less sympathetic now. He's finally gotten what he wants, and then they immediately kill dozens of people and intend to get up to more criminal shit. Um, because as soon as it pans away from her doing her ballet performance, you see that they've frozen probably to death the entire like stacked audience. And so it's like she comes around very quickly, like, oh yeah, you woken you awakened me. And you did some criminal shit to do so. But yeah, I'm just going to like co-sign and go along with you and kill a dozen people right now. Who's that? Sound like? get up to next. Sounds like Padme Amidala. Yeah. Some, I mean, something like that. Uh, she, she didn't go that. She didn't go nearly this far. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's an interesting move. Um, it's not really. I mean, I could see someone definitely criticizing how quickly she goes along with it. But that's another thing about Tomasi's run. I feel like it's it's so earnest. Like he's not going to sit here and try and like explain in depth like Nora's coming around to it, and like there's no there's nothing like hidden or or like presented differently. To try and make you I don't I don't know how to explain it, but like introspective. Yeah, there, yeah. There's not much of like navel gazing and, and setup and stuff like that. It it feels like it does feel sort of like silver bronze AG where it's like, here's this crazy shit. And, uh, you know, sometimes the crazy shit is people just being like brutal murderers, but in a crazy shit way. Yeah. That that is my criticism on it though, is that I thought Nora came around too quickly, but I like the fact that we, because we've seen what happens when she gets out of the tube. We saw it in the animated series, which after sub zero, um, freeze is able to save her. And then she was horrified at what Freeze had become. She left him, which then made Freeze's heart cold. So he just went out to destroy everyone's life's work, which I thought was a kind of cool idea to keep him a bad guy, where he just destroys things people love. Um, and then we have the version here where she goes, or she comes out of the tube and she dies, and then Freeze just also be, still becomes evil. So having her join with him is like the first time ever they've done something where she actually survives and joins him, which you think you would have saw by now, and I'm totally down for it. I just thought she came around to it really, really, really fast. But it's she's pretty like earnest and not, not a bad person when they go to Bruce and Lucius, like because the the big retcon here is that it wasn't Goth Corp that was funding Freeze be, before they kicked him out. It was Wayne Enterprises. If you caught that, um, it was Bruce yeah. who shut down. Victor's work because it was unstable. I think that's uh, that's a kind of a huge thing. So now you have this uh, kind of relationship with Victor and Bruce, while while the last time it was just kind of an evil businessman in Goth Corp. And then just want to count no no use of McGregor's syndrome uh, this time for what Nora's disease was. It's just straight cancer now. McGregor's syndrome being the fake disease that was in, that was uh, invented for the Batman and Robin movie in 1997. Um, just kind of just things that I have in my head of differences I've seen. But I like it. Uh, Doug Mankey still continues to be a force on art. He draws every single page of this book, um, just like he did very much at the beginning of Tomasi's run. Uh, the scripts are simple, but that's not a bad thing. It still continues to be good. I just very weird to see. I, I just want to know where they're going to take this because – 
like I said, Nora's not inherently bad. Like she shows like, she's like, she's very like nice and compassionate to Bruce for like, Hey, you always helped us out. And we thank you for that. And freeze doesn't like kill anyone when he goes to Wayne enterprises. He's just like, Hey, uh, I left some compounds here that mislabeled them purposely for if I ever needed to get them, I'm just stopping here and bye. See ya. So I thought that was a weird thing. So, so to have them turn around and kill all those people, I thought was a very odd decision, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, the other interesting pathway that they could do and that I was thinking before I realized, hey, there's another issue in this arc and everything like that. He could have got the formula, used it on Nora, and then they just, like, disappear. Yeah. And then it's like, you know, in several, several years, in like a year or two from now, it's like, oh, here's a mixed... Here's a free story again, and, and some somehow in the background, the status quo got reset. But here's another thing: if the, if the formula and gift from Lex doesn't go well, you can now fully make Freeze a guy, a Freeze a guy that can go after Lex, which would be interesting. Yeah, they won't do that. But hey, so Dow H for Hero number eight. There, there's some interesting structure in this issue. The comic book splits in half or something, and we have the dual origins of Robbie Reed. And we see Robbie's first time using the dial, which literally, not literally as in copy pasting, but Yokonona's is replicating the layout and, and, and uh, this is Sam Humphreys, right? Yes. Yeah. And Humphreys is, repl is literally copy pasting the script from House of Mystery number 156, the first appearance of Robbie Reed and the H dial. Which is wild, and there are, there are two panels doing that at the at the least. Then there's a page where it's like, here's all a bunch of insane early transformations that I had. Four out of six of those random examples are real Silver Age transformations from the first few issues of the feature, including like Radar Sonar Man with his ridiculous look. Um, it's kind of hilarious. I'm not sure about T Rex or General Electric. I didn't flip through the whole run to check for those and i mean this issue is basically his origin we have the death of his grandfather i'm not actually sure if that's a thing before probably and then he enters at some point after basically the end of the silver age run or, or whatever he enters the hero verse and he pull he just straight up pulls out a multiversity map which is weird which is interesting to see i suppose and the multiverse happens to also be the shape of an H or a, like a phone dial. And suddenly he like splits himself in half because he finds another dial, the Y dial. And he, and that's where Mr. Thunderbolt comes from. So there are actually two sides of the same coin. One is evil and one's good and they have different goals. And that's basically this issue. Next issue is going to be called identity crisis. And also Miguel and summer, are going to attempt to find the next dial on Apocalypse. So things are about to get even crazier. Um, I really like this issue. The The fact they literally pulled from the first appearance of Dial H, that put it up like 10 points for me on, on the nerd scale. And there's some interesting structure definitely in the the pacing of this of this issue. I, I mean, I love it. I love playing with the different types of structure because this is a book where you can have the outlet to do that and be creatively free to do that. And I think strengthens the book and makes it more memorable that way. I agree everything that you said. It continues to be one of my favorite books being put out at DC. So Dan, is this one of your favorite books? Um, it's just hard. Okay. For... What? I have to interrupt you. 
Okay. Because I see from the cover that Miles Warren is the bad guy. Do me, Vince, our friend Matt, and Billy have to come back to do <laughs> Saga of the Clone Saga since the Jackal's back on this? Is it 616 Jackal? Uh, I think it is because oh god no! <laughs> I think he makes reference. I, I think in this issue, I, I believe I heard him make a reference to, or like, so yeah, like you said, this story is about the jackal. He's basically camping out inside of Gwen and Stacy's high school, and there's one point where he like is talking with this like undercover man wolf like like student. That's a female, and she she mentioned something to the jackal about how Gwen Stacy's in the school, and he's like, you know, that's he mentioned something about the the Gwen Stacy from the six one six universe, I believe, but I'll have to go back and double check, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Like he's so that's that's why he's kind of obsessed with her because he's like, you know, from the original Clone Saga, what what it was all about. Um. But yeah, that, this, this story is pretty much a setup for this new arc with the Jackal. I don't know what type of um, angle they're trying to take here, but um, I did miss an issue of this story, so I'm, I'm jumping in trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, the status quo pretty much is that Gwen, this Spider-Gwen has basically come over from her universe to be in this universe. And, um, you know, it seems like everything's going fine with her. You know, she's enjoying life. This one friend, like I said, that's undercover is, you know secretly like the like she's like basically like the female version of the man wolf i guess um because the jackal is feeding her this like serum that turns her into the wolf that and, you know he's he's kind of trying to use her to get to spider gwen um we get a little bit of interaction with peter and spider gwen or and gwen stacy obviously peter's a lot older in this universe um than her but was weird, and I don't know if this was like addressed in like the previous issues, but like her suit kind of like just attaches to her like a venom like symbiote would, which I thought was a little interesting. I don't remember them explaining that in a previous issue. I mean, it's whatever; it's not a big deal. Um, I think it was from several arcs ago. Um, it's probably lingering from the Gwenum arc. Yeah, that's right. I still gotta still gotta read that stuff. I that's in the third hardcover, I think. Of um, Dan, did you what? forget that? taking classes in the 616 so the peter parker is the standard peter parker oh that's right my bad i'm sorry yeah that's the one from the amazing spider-man my bad that makes sense um yeah wow i'm i'm really really not on the ball tonight i guess but yeah we kind of get like a little bit of like a fight with spider gwen fighting some guys in like in a you know convenience store nothing too crazy um but you know, pretty much this, like, you know, the Jackal gave this, like, woman this serum to go after and be, like, the, the wolf, the man wolf to kind of track down and bring uh, Sp uh, Spider-Gwen to the Jackal. She failed, obviously. So, you know, the last panel is kind of the Jackal killing her off screen and, um, you know, killing her, like, inside the school, which is a little weird. I'm assuming she's, she's dead. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know where the story is really going. Um, yeah, I'm not really a big fan of this. I wasn't a big fan of like the second hardcover, like the stuff that was collected in the second hardcover of the original Spider-Gwen stuff. And this just seems like it's more of that type of stuff that I'm just, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. It's a little weird, but. 
So are you dropping this book? Um, I'm interested because of the Jackal and all that stuff. So I'm going to read it and find out, like at least see it through and see what's going on. But yeah. I don't, well, don't worry. You don't have to subject yourself to that. We did it for 75 episodes. You know, yeah. We can always come back and do more. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, this is, it, it did pique my interest though to see that character again and kind of hear a little bit more discussion about the, the original clone saga kind of coming through in this. So we'll, no, I don't know where it goes. When you have the option to get off of Miles Warren's wild ride, you get off it. No, I think I'm gonna stay on. I'll 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 go against the tide here. Mortal Hulk number twenty-five. Um, this is the issue where it just everything science fiction, um, deep exploration is crazy with Aluin's script this time. It this issue all takes place about an alien probe that is being sent back in time as we saw in issue 24 that the Hulk becomes like the destroyer of everything. It becomes the the world's Galactus when the ninth incursion, like the ninth rebuild of the universe happens that kind of Marvel is very sleuthly um, leading towards. So they want to go back and fix this. So it's all of like this deep science mumbo jumbo that fully like on the surface, I don't really understand. Um, all talking about how the Hulk is responsible for the destruction of everything and they have to stop it. And it all succeeds to the end with this probe being intercepted by the leader, which is the first time we've seen him shown up. I think in a very long time. I can't remember the last time the leader showed up uh, in anything, but it looks like the now that the leader knows that this information has happened, I'm very excited to see how the Hulk and the leader now interact with this being the a very like kind of strong physically and strong mentally version of the Hulk to go up against the leader. It was a very great reveal as like, this is kind of the end of the first big chapter of Al Ewing's run on the immortal Hulk. They built up this issue a lot. It's very, very good issue, but I I'd say it's a little bit too deep and introspective on the, the science fiction deep dive for me. It, it felt like I was reading a science, a science journal at some point, but very, very good comics here. Joan Bennett's still good. Al Ewing's still fantastic. But the the end page of like page of black a black page with white text on it was written in a mirror. And it's I you took a picture of it and obviously flipped it. And uh it's Bruce Banner talking to Joe, which is Joe fixed it, saying something's killing the Hulk and we have to stop it. So something's not going right in the Hulk's head. And the leader is now on their tail. So I'm very kind of intrigued to see how Al Ewing goes into the second big act of Immortal Hulk here. You know what's not cool? This issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> oh my God. One more to go. One more to go. I can't stand this book, man. The old, the Ultron Agenda Part 2, uh, Tony Stark Iron Man number 17. I could have sworn this is Part 3. I mean, I would not be surprised if Marvel totally fucked up the the parts on this this, this thing because it's it's totally from left field. I mean, it's just such a random ass story that I just cannot. Uh, oh my god, it just breathes like '90s to me. Uh, this is so. Just get everyone caught up. Basically, this like Ultron Hank Pym hybrid thing comes in, kidnaps Janet Van Dyne, who is technically Tony Stark's girlfriend at this point. He tries to merge. Janet Van Dyne and Jocasta to make like this hybrid um, Janet and Jocasta like, you know, robot so that he can like, you know, marry her and it's just really, really strange. I mean, 
there's probably someone out there who's like, this is fantastic. I love this, but I just, I don't know. Um, so pretty much this whole issue is just like a fight between Tony Stark, who's also like this like cyborg Iron Man hybrid who looks fucking ugly as shit. It looks so weird um, fighting against this Hank Pym Ultron hybrid. And um, we get some kind of good scenes like Rhodey's in here, but he's in like this like mechanized like flying ship shit. Like he's like just like totally like isolated in like this ship and he's like shooting at people and killing these robots and stuff. And we get a good moment between Jocasta and Machine Man. Uh, Machine Man basically gives his leg to Jocasta to go kick Hank Pym Ultron's ass. We get a little bit of um, discussion between Sunset Bane and uh, Arno Stark. I don't know where the fuck that's, that whole side plot's going. Probably to the stupid Iron Man 2020 event that we're going to have next year. Um, year it's like december yeah i was gonna say i just i should be excited for that but i'm really not and well, uh well, well, I, oh you're you're our resident iron man guy dan are you going to read 2020 i mean i'm tempted to just to see how bad it is i mean iron man 2020 was like never like something that like got off the ground for marvel i mean it's iron man 420 though what you like Iron Man 2020, though. I do, but I'm saying like it's like a not, it's like not really like a really popular character. Like he shows up like oh. like all over the place in different things, and like it's all different continuity. It's just you know, it's a little weird. He's a, he's a little bit of a weird character, I would say. But the biggest thing, the I guess the most rewarding thing of this whole issue is at the end. You know, after Tony gets shot down and like attacked, and he's kind of out for the count. Um, Rhodey suits up in the War Machine armor to fight uh, Hank Pym Ultron uh, hybrid there. So we'll see how the next issue goes. It's kind of cool to see like Rhodey back here and fighting. Um, I feel like he hasn't been used a lot in this run. I mean, not surprising because, you know, there's too many damn fucking side characters that they just don't know how to use. I mean, it's just a sad when the day that I read a Tony, an Iron Man book and there's like a freaking talking cat. It's like, what is this? This is not... This is not an Iron Man issue. Like, there's, there's, uh, I just, I don't know. Next book. I, I take some sort of weird, perverse joy in listening to Dan complain about this book every single time he reads it. It's like so bad that I'm not even gonna. I'm not even thinking about collecting this in trade. Like, even if they cr like release like a nice hardcover, I'm really not gonna buy it because like this whole it happens, right? You're, you're gonna get it one year. We go on a trip somewhere and it's gonna be cheap, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna give it another shot. <laughs> No, the, this the last part of the, the the later half of this run has left a, a very sour, a li really bad taste in my mouth. So, yeah, that's it. Now, for in the cool book, cool books section, we have Marauders number one. This is our second Dawn of X title. Last time we had X Men number one, which kind of felt more the same because it was still Jonathan Hickman following Hoxpox. So this is the first book not touched 100% directly by Jonathan Hickman. This is Jerry Duggan and Matteo Loli. And so Kitty Pride is our main character here. And she can't go through the portals all around the Earth to Krakoa. You know, obviously it has to have something to do with her powers um, and maybe the turbulent history of her powers. But she tries to go through a portal. 
uh, as Ko is set up and she hear, gets around hearing about it and everything, and she just busts up her nose. So now for the time being, um, it'd be interesting to see if they actually take it off, if it gets fixed at some point, depending on how long this run goes. But Kitty has a busted up nose with a bandage on it, which is kind of cool aesthetic. Um, just slight little change gives her a slightly different edge and everything like that. And so she steals a boat and just is like, I'll sail to Krakoa because it is a physical island. And she also, while she was at it, brought, she got some uh, groceries essentially for Logan. And so he's got, um, it's like coffee, beer, et cetera, et cetera. Coffee, beer, whiskey, and ribs. Yeah, in fact, be interesting to think about the continuity here. Does she show up before the end of uh, Hoxpox? And is this that beer? I don't know. I was going to say, well, no, that was cans. That's she gets, she has her get kegs. Yeah. Um, and so then we, I, and Logan's just kind of here. I don't, he's not going to be in the book long term, I don't think. Uh, but obviously, he has a relationship with Kitty. And Iceman shows up, and he's our next. Uh, regular cast member he's handled pretty well in this issue he's quippy he makes a few jokes about being gay but they're like tasteful they're not forced um i thought they were that was handled well um which is to say like not really handled at all but acknowledged which is in in, in my view how the best way to do it and then emma frost approaches kitty telepathically and of course they have a long complicated relationship and so they i think duggan handles their dynamic pretty well um you know going way back to her early years when emma led the original hellions and then prominently um in astonishing x-men and runs like that and so emma's like yeah we have this thing the hellfire trading company it's you know it's modeled after something like the east india company or stuff like that um so, because we have this literal pharmaceutical operation, we have to move that stuff around and everything like that. And so Kitty, she's like, hey, Kitty, um, you can't use these stupid gates, so why don't you just take charge of this? But there's a little bit of a pirate vigilante twist. So Kitty on her boat is going to be move, literally moving drugs for Krakoa and also liberating Krakoan gates because in certain countries, and things like that. There are protesters or anti-mutant militias or like weird bioengineered monsters that are like patrolling the gates, making sure mutants don't escape and things like that. Um, and Bobby just like randomly decides to go through a portal and uh, goes to Russia. And there's some derp heads patrolling the gate there. So that's going to be their first mission. And even before she gets to Koa, like it's set up that Kitty is like into dr drinking now, which is kind of odd. Um, but it gives her a bit of a bit more character, I guess, um, on a certain level. And she quickly recruits Bobby and she recruits Storm for wind purposes. Well, that's that's the very easy explanation. And then this doesn't even recruit him, but I guess Pyro was sleeping in the ship. So he's on the team because they're out in the middle of the ocean on the ship. And this is the original Pyro who died in 2001 during Dream's End as a legacy virus victim. There was a second Pyro, which I'm not going to get into just to get 
save a little time on the episode and everything, go Google, Google it. And Pyro is an odd addition. Obviously, he's one of these reformed villains, which we know are going to be, which we know are on Krakoa and are going to be littered throughout these books. But it works out because if you recall, and they do adapt this in the movie, which used Pyro in a totally different way. But of course, Pyro doesn't generate fire. He manipulates fire. So he synergizes really well with Lockheed. Um, there's a fun scene there. And Kitty, so they show up in Russia, and Kitty just goes fucking ham. And just like, I mean, you know, the thing is, Kitty's one of those characters, like, if you really do apply her powers and she's using them well, she is, like, really strong. Because she could walk into an army of, like, 100 dudes, just have every bullet go right through her and hit the other dudes, slice them up and everything like that. And that's basically what she does here. There's a really, like, uncomfortable moment where she like jams an assault rifle through like two dudes legs and it shows like how it's stuck it, there's no gore or anything but it shows how it's stuck in their legs and it's like geez well, that would be it. It, it looks painful as hell yeah i mean literally just the just the physics of it it's like when you think too hard about some of kitty like the things that kitty could totally do uh with her powers it's like some really uncomfortable stuff. It's almost like body horror. Um, and I'm surprised, like, you know, they don't really lean into it too much. Um, I feel like we haven't had that many great Kitty Pride combat moments. But this issue, probably the best of that that we've seen in, in a decade or something. Um, and she grabs a sword from one of the dudes. So she's got that pirate angle. And, of course, she has history with swords um, through training with Logan. And the end of the book, she smiles for the camera and announces the book title and also call her Kate. But realistically, I'm probably going to keep calling her Kitty. That's just the nature of it. And the, the, the only subplot here, and we know it's going to keep going because I think he's going to officially join the team, is that Bishop is in Taiwan investigating maybe some propaganda or some shenanigans. It's not entirely clear. And he... And that was cool to see because he's, I mean, Bishop has always had like kind of a detective sort of bent because the entire reason for him coming to the past in the first place was to figure out, um, you know, I don't even fucking remember. He had to figure out some shit, like some mutant was going to do something stupid later on. And I think it ended up being Gambit and maybe being tied to the mutant massacre retcons. I don't really fucking remember. But, and then of course, Bishop had that run the district X run before and during house of M where he was just like straight up a, uh, a like a, like detective in M town. I think it's called when like New York city had a whole like um, neighborhood with mutants before M day. Um, yeah. I really love this issue. I thought Jerry Duggan character. I mean, it's, it's really carried by kitty and Iceman has some good quips. But he handles Kitty really well in terms of character. There's lots of great action and creative action. The art by Matteo Loli. And in some pages, I was kind of iffy on it, but it's got a nice sheen to it. It reminds me just slightly, slightly. It's like a, I don't know. I don't know. I'm reaching here. But honestly, like some of the textures on the faces, it actually reminds me a tiny, tiny bit of Mikkel Janin, but it's a little bit more cartoon cartoony and looser 
um, but just like the the skin texture and the curvature of, of bodies and things, if that makes any sense. Um, I really like this issue. I think it honestly impressed me and pulled me in way more than X-Men number one. Um, I would give it two thumbs up. Hey, uh, I would agree because I wasn't originally going to read this and I'm really happy I did because I, I agree. I enjoyed this more than X-Men number one. I thought Kitty was handled really, really well here. Um, put her over as really, really cool, more so than usual. I mean, I still like Kitty a lot. But then, like, also, like, the combat stuff was awesome. She's She also has, like, ninja training, too, so she's even more deadly. Um, all the stuff with Lockheed was great. Um, I liked having, like, the, the the rule of three gag of him always bringing something back to Kitty um, in his mouth to eat for food. He drops off a crab to her. Um, a, dude's hand, a dude's thumbs at the end of the issue. <laughs> Um, after they liberate that one gate, and I can't remember what he, and then a seagull the first time, which I thought was funny. Um, Pyra being here is cool, blends perfectly well, like you said, with Lockheed. Iceman's fun to see, Storm is fun to see on this team. So yeah, Pirate X-Men is, seems like a really, really fun idea. And this definitely set, the setup here is really, really fun. I can't wait to see what happens. I'm, I'm definitely yeah. sticking with it. Yeah, I was kind of wary of the, the pirate premise and how much they were going to lean into it. But as soon as like, even though it was, it was pretty much set up in Hoxpox, but as soon as like it all clicks with Emma Frost and everything like that, it's like this weird pirate X-Men book makes 100% sense in this current status quo. Very strange. But next is Excalibur. Um, Mike, do you expect you'll read Excalibur? That's the one that, if you remember, that's the one from the beginning that I said I was, I was going to read from the start. Okay. Yeah, so that'll be dealing with White Psylocke. Um, take, well, White Psylocke briefly, and because now she's... Um, she's going to become Captain Britain. Britain mantle. And some other X-Men characters. I think maybe Apocalypse is involved in that book. Yeah. I think it's written by Teeny Howard, so I'm excited to check it out for sure. We'll see how it compares to the other two. And, you know, there's like four more. And Marvel literally announced, like, the next four books today. Behind closed doors, but you know, there's no such thing as that. So, Giant coming back. We know we're getting a X Men Fantastic Four series with Franklin. Those are just some of them. Why, as they get more and more formally announced, and like they get closer, we'll talk about it. But those are the two big ones to take away today. Yeah. So that's the show. Um, act. We didn't kind of cover, go, go through it bit by bit. If you guys want to say, what do you think would be your quick um, uh, pick of the weeks off top Marauders. of Marauders. Marauders. Um, for me, I'm also going to go Marauders. Criminal would be my runner-up, but I mean, Criminal's always a ten out of ten, so I'll give yeah, it. To I Marauders. can't. Criminal. <laughs> Mine is Damn Tony Stark Iron Man number seventeen. No, it's no, not. Um, no, it's not. Say, yeah, I would probably say Criminal. Wrap up. <laughs> what? So just say it's criminal and we can head out. Yeah, I was going to say, criminal gets it again. Shocker. All right. Now, our retro book, The Random Number Generation, has decided it's a Marvel book from November 2009. Mm. And we have four choices, which we know always works well. <laughs> we have Guardians of the Galaxy, number 18 from Abnet and Lanning. And this is kind of the uh, uh, 
it's sort of a standalone issue and the focus is on the future version of the guardians or at least a version of that team we have uncanny x-men 515 which is the first issue of the nation x arc slash status quo during matt fractions run we have vengeance of moon knight number one and we have a punisher annual by rick remender so what do you guys think well i already read one of the or, or what we could do so since there's four of them um rather than picking the winner which one do you guys want to vote out and then we'll we'll, we'll slim it down i would say uh, vote out the punisher annual. damn what was yours well, I would say the Guardians, because I already read that. Um, I'm going to side with Mike, so we're going to vote out Punisher first. <laughs> and I'm going to yeah. tell you right and now, Dan, we'll... I'm not voting for Guardians to read. So Okay, well, that's good. That makes two of us. So what's our second vote out? Did you both say Guardians? Yeah, let's, let, let's both vote out Guardians. Okay, so it leaves two. Uncanny X-Men 515 or Vengeance of Moon Knight. So this is the one you do want to read. Yes, this is one you do want to read, since it's just two left. Uh, X-Men. Moon Knight. Ooh, yeah, 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 yeah. as always. I'm going to go with X-Men. Damn it. Because we're, we're, we're in an X-Men mood, uh, or at least we're reading X-Men books. I mean, we're always in an X-Men mood. What are we talking about here? Yeah, exactly. But we're going to try that out. It'll be interesting. Um, I, I mean, I think Mike may know, but I didn't mention that it is drawn by Greg Land, so that'll be fun. Oh, that's one of the reasons why I chose it. Of course, yeah, you we'll, did. We'll have, lots, we'll have lots to talk about. So, tune in next week to hear about Uncanny X Men five fifteen and whatever fun books come out next week. Bye bye. <laughs>right that's our show for this week as always remember to like and subscribe on youtube to catch the live show with the hall segment that you can only watch live next week since it's a weird fifth week in a month kind of overlap with november dc's got a lot of annuals the end of deceased is happening so not a lot of books next week should be a pretty well i'm gonna say it's gonna be a short show but i've been wrong before but Thanks for tuning in. And remember, Noteman's podcast on Mondays or Tuesdays. You can catch that all archived on the YouTube channel. And that will always be linked in the description below. Have a good one. Bye.